Hello, welcome to today's episode of From the Margins, Perspectives on Architecture. Good morning, good evening, good night. I'm your host, Herman. I'm here today with Anurada Iyarsidiki, whose interests are in architectural history and theory, spatial politics, histories of migration and settlements, histories of land and partitions, modernism and modernity in Africa and South Asia, feminist practice and theory, black and brown consciousness theory, histories of heritage, politics and craft practices, intellectual histories, critical cultural practices in production, collectivity, radical pedagogy, pedagogies, and mutual aid, past and present pedagogical practices in art and architecture. I normally begin this podcast asking about how you've been doing during the quarantine, but now that the semester has started and that you're back teaching, I assume, I would like to ask you, how is that going for you? How is the teaching? How is back at campus going for you? How is everything, all this crazy um, teaching from uh, your home or not from home? Like, how is it going for you? Well, Herman, I'm, I teach in New York, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I had expected and offered to teach a hybrid course where I would be partially in-person and partially online. We were told very late in August that um, the undergraduate campus would go 100% remote and that the graduate students would be um, able to come to campus if they wished. I um, happened to be teaching a, a bridge course that has both graduates and undergraduates. So that set up a very strange context for that course. Um, so I essentially offered to teach the class online, but hold office hours in person if people wanted to meet in person. Okay. And New York has, um, unlike the rest of the country, um, come to a point where it's relatively safe and lots of people have been able to be in the parks and meet in person. Um, but what we are starting to see since the beginning of the school year is the failing of other sorts of infrastructures in the city. And the one that affects me most directly is the New York public school system, because I have two small children in the public schools. And Mm. this is affecting a number of faculty on campus. And um, especially as of yesterday, we've seen a massive crisis. The opening of the schools was already delayed by two weeks. Schools were supposed to be opening on Monday next week, and now they're being delayed another two weeks. So we have faculty who are simply unable to even control their own schedules. So that's a bigger issue in some ways than our own classes that we are teaching. Yes, and a a bigger systemic issue for the university and other professors, and not only tenured professors, I guess, like for visiting scholars and all of that. It's been a kind of profound, reflective moment for me um, for many, many reasons. Um, My partner grew up in Bangladesh, and as he often says, you know, in 1971, we just didn't go to school for a year. And I have worked in refugee camps, I've worked with many Somalis, and I also think that there are many people in the world who know what it feels like to just not, you just don't go to school for a year. It's just something that happens in a lot of parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And obviously for many people in many parts of the world, there isn't a reliance on the government and government funded schools. Yes. 
yet we are such a wealthy country that we have gone now for so many generations simply assuming um, that the public schools are given. They are a given for education, they are a given for the workforce, and they're certainly a given for society. So this has really occasioned a kind of deep, not just a kind of structural stoppage, but it's sort of a deep moment of reflection. One of these many reverberations of the pandemic that don't have to do with health itself. But the failure of the complete system and like more deep uh, problems of the of the country. Yes, I understand. Um, well, I'll do the the proper introduction of of my my guest today. Uh, Dr. Anurada Iersidiki specializes in histories of architecture, modernity, and migration. Uh, centering African and South Asian questions of historicity and archives, heritage, politics, and feminist and colonial practices. Her scholarship attempts to expand histories of marginalized people and figures and promote practices of collaboration and support, especially to foreground the lives and narratives of communities that have been systematically excluded or silenced. Thinking through objects, buildings, and landscapes, her work examines intellectual histories and diverse forms of aesthetic practice and cultural production. Uh, Professor Siddiqui holds a PhD in the history of art and archaeology and a Master of Architecture degree and a professional license. Her professional background includes work for the United Nations Foundation, the Coalition for Adolescent Girls, and the Women's Refugee Commission. Um, so, um, as we can hear and listen, she had a very interesting, she has a very interesting and long uh, career. Uh, she has practice, she has uh, research, she has write, and she has uh, now uh, teach. Um, um, and I would like to ask, what are you doing now aside from teaching? Are you writing something? Are you working on a new uh, project, a research project, writing a book or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As uh, if I you had any more should, time? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up a, the, a book that started with my own dissertation. Um, on um, it's the, a book called Architecture of Migration, thinking about thinking about architectures of migration. I think a topic that's possibly close to your own heart. Um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm really uh, looking at. I mean, I got interested in this subject matter in East Africa on the border of Somalia, and I um, have been looking very closely at um, a group of refugee settlements. Um, near the town of Dadaab in Kenya. And also um, the refugee settlements themselves, but also the land that they sit on and the kind of regional politics, the land politics and a, a longer and deeper history of the region of um, maybe a long kind of humanitarian abolitionist history of the region. Mm -hmm. um, and um, really trying to think of um, I suppose a, a, a straightforward premise, which is that, you know, I started with this question of what, what do we 
when you see a refugee camp, what is it that you're actually seeing? And for me, the, the thing I had sort of came to the more closely I looked at this, this space of migration was that when you are seeing a refugee camp, it's likely that you're seeing a partition. Hmm. And so the book is really it kind of grows out of that. And um, so that is that book. The, the other project is one I have been also working on actually for almost longer. I think like most people, you, you're working on a project and then you start doing a PhD, but then the PhD, you know, is some, ends up being something else, but there was this other, your first love that you go back to, you know? So then I, I had met, met Mineta Silva, um, I met her the year that she died actually, and I, I had met her when I was an architect long before I ever imagined um, um, even uh, doing a PhD or becoming a historian. And um, I think, you know, about 20 seconds after I defended my dissertation, I went back to Sri Lanka to try to work on that project. I had actually proposed a, a, a study um, of her work for the dissertation along with this other project. And my advisor advised me to do this other project. Mm. Um, but then I went back and I'd have been building up that research as well. And so that is, that is also in the works. Mm. Just, those those are the things are happening. And I've also, I suppose a third thing is that I'm doing um, a rather, um, the beginnings of a bigger project on Nairobi. And, um, Work, I've been working with artists in Nairobi and trying to develop a bigger uh, a history of the built environment of Nairobi. Wow. Three, indeed, very interesting, but also big, big projects. Uh, you mentioned two things that, well, many things that, that caught my interest, but two things that I would like to, to go back and ask you. Um, one of them is, and I think that I asked this question to a couple of persons, and, and it was, why, uh, what prompted you to study architecture? And um, after that, what made you to go through from uh, being a practicing architect to a historian of architecture? Um, and I, I think that I asked this because it's kind of like my path to because I, I was a practicing architect and then I went to, to history. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are these days. Um, mm -hmm. I had studied literature in uh, university and I, had, um, I was fully planning to do a PhD in literature. And I came of age in the subaltern moment. I had, had you know, very big plans of doing some sort of course in subaltern literature. Um, and then suddenly just took a turn, very different turn, because I think I had always had this uh, other interest in material, material studies. And I have had um, skills in drawing and just more technical skills. And I think um, wanted to do something more technical. Hmm. And I think um, I, I don't have a rational um, explanation for why I changed tack, um, but I, I just did. And it, I think it just the, you know, the world started to make sense. I, 
I did a I did a short course, and the world just started to make sense uh, as I started to study architecture. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, all through my architecture degree, and later as a young architect, I was writing, and um, I found I was then becoming the person in the office who was always writing about the projects, or being asked to work with the clients, or being the person who was writing the history of the projects. Or I always seemed to have that role, and um, without having been trained in communications, I just was a more, more of a literary person. Mm. Um, and I, I, you know, I worked in a firm that did um, historic preservation at one point. I think there were just, my, my interests sort of just grew in that direction. Ultimately, the, um, the decision came out of something um, I think very embodied, I um, got pregnant. Mm. Um, I got pregnant and at the very same time I uh, was awarded by the National Endowment of the Arts to write a book. And I think the dovetailing of these two things, the award would enable me to do a year of graduate school. So I applied to grad graduate schools and it allowed me the funding to be able to go to, you know, quit my job and go back to school. And so I thought at that point, you know, if I don't do this now, I'll never do it. So I thought I would do it. And I knew at that point, I also, I mean, I think I just had a, an instinct that I knew I wanted to be an academic no, rather okay. than, I think I, I knew what I wanted to be doing with this architectural knowledge, and I, it wasn't to be working um, in a capitalistic environment. Yeah. I, I know that sounds ridiculous because I work in a university and I'm not sure that a university isn't the most capitalistic environment, but it is a space in which one is ostensibly called upon to um, do other kinds of work. Yes, yeah. there is still, it is still a mission-based kind of work. So I think I still hold, hold to that um, potential. Yeah, the, the teaching somehow it is still a call. Like you, you don't teach to become rich, to say it in a way. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I work in a complicated institution. It is a teaching college. It's, it is also a, you know, connected to a research-based institution. So it, it, it's a funny, you know, I think these things are complicated. Mm -hmm. I don't think anything is just about teaching anymore. Mm -hmm. But it enables conversations like this. Or, you know, I think there are many ways we all exist. Yes, true, 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 true. As, I mean, I, I find very interesting. I don't know if, if it was your case. My, my formation as an architect didn't really, and, and every single time I talk about this, I did have some a lot um, of courses of history and theory, but I, I don't consider my formation as an architect heavy handed in the history and theory area. It was much more technical. Um, I mean, I was, I was in a technical school, not in a technical school. It was, it was uh, a university that was kind of like modeled after the MIT. So it was, you know, like a, a, um, a technical institution in that way. So, the the humanistic part wasn't really a big thing 
and even though that was my it was always my interest the history and theory part of the architecture has has always been um there for me so after my my degree my masters was trying to combine that part of design with the history and theory so my masters was history um, um a theory and design combined in in spain and then the phd kind of like came after as a as a result of that as a way to to kind of like further more even more the history and, and theory part of it and somehow people still ask me like are you are you going to practice again one day and, and i've never said no I've always said that if the, if a right project comes and, and if I have the time, I will, you know, I will take it, I will do it. But I mean, first, first things first, I need to finish my dissertation and complete it and defend it. And then I'll see what, what's next and what comes next. Um, but yes, it's, it's, you know, one of, one of the things that always um, interests me because there's, there's always, there's also people in, in the group and that I met that are historians and that come from different backgrounds and that come from philosophy or that come from other backgrounds that are not architects in formation and that are doing PhDs in architecture and they have a different perspective from uh, for or from the, um, the field. And, and it's also interesting to talk and to have conversations with them because they they see architecture as a different entity, as a different animal in a way, as a different like monster, just to call it a to call it a thing, and and in a way having worked in an architecture office, having worked even like in my case in in construction in the field in you know in where they put mortar and the bricks and everything like gives you the whole range of like drawing to being there in the in the field so yes it's it's different so i was i was also reading into your course uh catalog that you um you have been um this this year you're going to be teaching two two very interesting courses on uh the modern architecture in the world and the histories of architecture and feminism at Barnard College, and I would, I was, um, I was really, I mean, of course, both both of them are are is extremely interesting, uh, but one of them kind of like catch my eye because it's it's one of the courses that uh, we as PhD students are always uh, kind of like called to to teach which is a modern architecture, like, you know, it's a, the basic course of um, modern architecture or architecture um, one, which is from 1851 to, and some, somehow you have a, a, a game to, to move it a little bit to until when you want to finish it, if it either if it's 1960 or a little bit further. Um, and 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 your your little insert of of how it is defined is how has architecture been modern this course introduces a student to objects practices figures and ideas behind 
this cont uh, contentious and contradictory concept emerging across asymmetries in disparate world worlds during the past two centuries. And um, it occurred to me, um, is this, an, is this an undergrad course or this is a grad course? It's an undergraduate course. Do I say two centuries or four centuries? Two centuries. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps that needs to be rewritten. Um, yeah, it's an undergraduate course. Um, do you want me to say something about it? Yes. Um, yeah, well, even, more, a, even more now that you said the four centuries thing. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a it's a required course for our majors. Um, so as I said, we the we have a fun a little bit of a funny campus. The um, so you know I'm I'm at Barnard, which is technically a different institution from Columbia, mm -hmm. um, but technically also not a different institution from Columbia. We are. Um, we sit with a sort of special relationship. Students at both um, colleges can take classes at any of the, on any of the campuses. Um, and, you know, undergraduate students can also take courses in the graduate schools and vice versa. But, um, so there are a few different places on campus where people teach architectural history. And, um, so a course like this that introduces students to the history of modern architecture exists in a few different places on the campus and they and it gets taught in different ways in on on this campus. Um, so a version of this course has been taught in this department for some, I don't know, 20 or 30 years now. Mm -hmm. But um, I was asked I mean, there's a new complement of faculty in our department now who, um, um, a new complement of history theory faculty. And so one of my jobs when I came on board was to retool this particular course, which is the one of the required history theory courses. And so in its retooling, one of the things that we are doing is offering a course that can fulfill um, requirements for majors across the campus. So it's a course that is really a kind of introduction to the way um, modern architecture basically emerged around the world in different parts of the world, but is also a sort of experiential learning course for people who want to learn to become architects but also people who end up majoring in urban studies or who major in art history or who major in uh, anthropology or who a lot a variety of undergraduate majors. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an interesting kind of um, course from that perspective. The students who come to it come from, I mean, most of them, um, for most of them, it's a kind of gateway course into an architecture major. Um, and in some cases, students do come with really preconceived notions of what you would call an, a canon in modern architecture, mm -hmm. but many students don't have a sense at all of anything. Um, so it's an interesting course that way. It's a, it, um, it's a real mix of students. 
Yes, and, and I asked this in comparison with, um, you know, the, the other courses that you have listed, like colonial practices, colonial uh, histories of, of architecture and feminism, histories of modern, of architecture in South Asia, histories of, of um, architectures in the world. And, and I was wondering, how do you, what do you define as modern architecture when because it's it's been you know one of the one of the conversations precisely in in all of these circles of um decolonial um in in all of the circles of the decolonial conversations of of architecture and when when do we start to talk about what is modern architecture and when do we start to talk about when do we define what modern architecture is and and when do we stop to talk about what modern architecture is and that's what why i ask what about this course um not only because it's it's one of the you know also one of the things that i that we or i have to go through it's like when do i where do i start because if I go with with my with what I've been learning from the decolonial uh, literature, well, the you know if if we go with with what is modern, we have to go through basically the discovery of the Americas. You know, we have to go to the 1500s, mm -hmm. or or do we start with with a canon again? I know that that it's it's a it's kind of like a difficult uh, conversation. Uh, for you, but the, the canon of like modernism, like do we go to the 1920s uh, or when do we start or, or the 1851 um, Crystal Palace? Like how do you how do you structure a course so um, open as this? How do you and also in the world, you know, like how like where where do you where do you start? Where do you stop? How 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 big it is a course like this? Yeah, I mean, um, I have to admit when you asked me to come and speak today, I didn't expect we were going to talk about this particular course. <laughs> There's a lot of other things you and I could be talking about, but um, it, it's an you know I think it's an important um, question. Um, I think the fundamental um, answer is that we wanted to design an open scaffold course that anyone could come and teach and anyone could come and learn. Okay. Um, the assignments in the course are designed for students to implement their own kind of individual learning process. And the, the teaching model is for um, professors to come in and build on their own expertise. So someone who, you know, wants to teach it from, you know, post-World War II to the present could in fact do that. It's okay. thematically oriented. If someone wants to teach it, um, you know, from 1400 to the present, they could do that. Mm -hmm. It's really not, um, uh, it's intended to be a kind of, I like to teach it basically through different kinds of archives. I mean, I open the course, I open the course talking about slavery. Hmm. But my first modern architecture is boats. Hmm. Okay. But I think a lot of people, could, I mean, I don't think, I'm not saying that is the answer. That's mm -hmm. my way of teaching it. Yes. I think the point of the course, we had had some debate, I think, for like a second, 
about whether the course should be called Architecture in the Modern World. And I also advocated against that because I thought, no, we should call it Modern Architecture because it should just be called Modern Architecture because there is such a thing as Modern Architecture and lots of people use that term and that's what it is. It's not about the modern world. It is actually about modern architecture. Modern architecture. And I think the, uh, you know, it's not, it, some people might want to do a sort of counter critique of the term. I don't necessarily need to counter the term. Other people might want, need to. I mean, I don't, I, I think it's in really intended to be an opening. Mm -hmm. And I think it's presented to the students that way too. And, you know, so thus we teach the Crystal Palace. We also teach um, indigenous land rights. We do all kinds of teaching in the course. And it all, fundamentally, it is an undergraduate course for student, many students who have never taken an architecture course again and may never take one afterwards. So it's really intended to introduce. But for some students, it is the first of many, many, many courses they will take in the yes. field of architectural history. So it's also intended to create a relationship. Um, so as a relationship building course, what I hope it does is make some building blocks and make some openings for each person to negotiate. You know, I, I would hope that um, it creates intellectual independence and allows each student to negotiate with herself or himself to actually, you know, make the make a way forward in a discussion that involves the the material and built and constructed world. But also, yes, and also, if even if it's the only course on architecture that they take, it is a really interesting, you know, base for someone that this is the only course that they took on architecture and they continue on other path and other fields. And, and this is what they take from history of architecture. This is a really interesting um, base to, to take uh, to other fields. And this is, yes, this is. This I agree. And uh, if I can add one thing, I really want to sort of um, make a few citations here. Um, I, I really fundamentally believe that it has been a co-constructed course. Um, I know that I'm the professor of this, or I've been the professor of this uh, new version of this course for the last mm -hmm. three years, but um, I have had um, really profound TAs in the course who I think have fundamentally uh, co-created the course. Mm -hmm. I have also had um, colleagues who I've been in very close discussion with in the past years who have, um, you know, fundamentally co-created the course. So if you don't mind, I would like to name a few names. Sure. Just uh, when I joined Barnard um, two years ago, we held a workshop to kind of rethink this particular course. And um, the two TAs at the time, um, Megan Erdley, who you may know, and Jonah Rowan, who you may know, um, uh, were there. Your own professors, Sophie Hopalzel was there, mm -hmm. and Samia Henney. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think that this new version of the syllabus really grew through them. The TAs last year, um, Ingrid Lau, um, who is at Princeton, and Anna Ozaki, who's at Cornell, really grew the course. I would absolutely say that every batch of students who has taken the course has helped us. The, the students um, 
each week do reading responses and present images as part of their reading responses. Their engagement with the readings has absolutely co-constructed the course. So I want to sort of acknowledge that as a way of saying that from my perspective, that is what these courses are at this point. I, in the last, you know, three years have also participated in, you know, I don't even know if I can remember to name all of the workshops that I have participated in these um, GAHTC and SAH and various, like, I'm sure you've been at them too. I don't know. And lots of institutions have also independently had these various syllabus workshops. And I think I've just had like, numerous conversations with any number of colleagues on syllabi exclusively. Um, and certainly this whole summer on anti-racist syllabi. Mm. So I think, um, I, I, I really honestly think a course like this is simply just in the water at this point. This is just what we are all doing at this point. And I don't, I don't think that we should all be fretting over courses like this anymore. And honestly, as we are all moving into this weirdly partially online world, this should actually just be a part of everyone's literacy. I, I would hope that a lot of people are, are like learning and growing even without courses like this. I think that we can, we can learn a lot of this material just through conversation with our colleagues. Hmm. Yes, I mean, and and one of precisely one of the one of the goals of the and and not because I I ha, I wanted to um, you know put in in high standards the the podcast, but one of the goals of the of the podcast was precisely this: is like if we don't have the courses, if we don't have the the ability, like why don't we have these conversations in a podcast and try to put them outside? And and if we can have more and more and more, maybe this becomes more natural to talk about and that's you know one one of the things what when you ask me and and maybe the listeners don't know they of course they don't know this but before we started to record like you asked me like why did i started this this is one of the reasons um there's not enough courses that we can teach that we can participate in about uh, many of of the of the topics that we are interested in because of of the curricula that schools just put together or because of there are not enough uh courses that you can put out there and because there are not many students to fill them there you know many constraints but there are these type of spaces where we can have these discussions and and the more spaces i guess that we can have um to have discussions and the more spaces that we can gather together that now even zoom has been proven a good tool to have um, those conversations well let's just use them i guess like yeah i think you know one of the things um you know, as we you think about teaching and especially introduction courses to, to history and theory of architecture, there was, a I think, a time when there was a need to craft a narrative. And certainly in undergraduate instruction, there was a need to craft a narrative about what is anthropology about? 
what is architectural history about? What is uh, English literature about? Like those, those intro courses needed to be able to say what they were about so that a student could walk away and have a narrative. Mm -hmm. I think that we're in a kind of an open, open, you know, both open source and open format model now in which the, the linear narrative is less important and instead the, dis, the discourse around something is much more much important. More. Mm -hmm. How are we talking about it and how are we sitting with something? How's something hanging in the air rather than, you know, what was said, what's, and I think the, that kind of like reception and reflection uh, pieces, what we're all uh, dealing with a bit more now in, yeah. in pedagogy. And I think also um, mutual pedagogy and this sense of like self pedagogy is becoming a much more important thing for all of us to be thinking about. Um, I think as we also see the, maybe the breakdown of institutions, yes. we will see whether, whether the PhD and whether the kind of this way of, you know, this structure is really the way that a narrative gets delivered. Mm -hmm. yes. Whether, yeah, I mean, I don't know. These are not, I don't, I say this by way of saying that, you know, the, the, the narratives that I see rising to the top are not coming out of classrooms in that sense, not in the same way that they were even when I was in architecture school. Hmm, that's, yes, that's an interesting thought. I, um, you, and, and precisely thinking about this, um, you know, not, not a, a linear narrative and not a, not a way of constructing knowledge in that, in that kind of like, you know, building this, this structure that it's linear. I was thinking, and it, it, it kind of like surprised me. Um, you, you have been uh, a practicing architect for some time and then you, you decided to teach um, in, the, in the history and theory area. And your courses are centered in topics of coloniality, feminism, modernism, uh, modernism, history of architecture in South Asia, but uh, or at least in in the list that I got access to, were mostly or only seminars. Um, and I was wondering if you are or have been ever interested in teaching or converting this into studio courses and and this got me to think you know when when you mentioned about not being linear about teaching this concepts and teaching this these ideas in a linear way to put this question in another way do you think that we can teach all these other concepts not just in seminar uh, format, but in a studio format. So this course that I teach called Histories of Architecture and Feminism, um, the way I describe the course, and I wrote an article about this in Platform, if you're interested in reading it, um, is to, is effectively like a, um, a research-based studio in which our work is in the archive and students work out of the archive 
they, we meet in the Barnard Archive and their work is to do archival research and they put together research as part of their, if you, if you like, their studio project. Okay. They're not making a studio project. The making is to do the archival research. So each week they put together a dossier of what they found for the week. They also, um, we kind of um, occupy the windows of the, of the archive and they, they do a little um, in the windowsill exhibition mm. of their weekly work, of whatever like findings they've, you know, like cool things that they've discovered. And um, I mean, that has been the way we've taught the course. I'll, I'll be teaching it a sl slightly differently this year, but um, that has been um, one way that I've translated. I used to teach actual studio back when I was an architect. I, I haven't practiced architecture in a very long time and I don't call myself an architect. I'm really not an architect anymore. And mm -hmm. out of very deep respect for people who do practice architecture, I really don't practice architecture and I don't, think I want to compare myself to what they do because I, th I think it involves very deep important work and I am a historian and I that's what I do so mm -hmm. but um the but I think that I I understand pedagogically what it means to teach studio and how that works and I do think that I get what you're asking and I absolutely think that there are um, models of making where research can be a making-based form of labor mm -hmm. that I think we can absolutely be be doing. It doesn't. It's a different. It's an alternate form of productivity that I think can happen, and that I encourage in different ways in a lot of my courses. But that's the that. Um, Histories of Architecture and Feminism course is one in which that form of praxis is really explicit. Mm -hmm. And I ask, it's not a course in which I give them feminist texts and we talk about, it's not a seminar on feminism. It is actually building feminist praxis in which they are being told that to read an archive, how do you go into an archive? How do you construct archives? What do you, you know, what is it? What is an archive? How do you make one? These are these are feminist questions. How do you recuperate, um, you know, an epistemic shape, and make history from it? How, yeah. Make a kind of historiography from it. Um, how do you redress epistemic violence? How do you recuperate absences? How do you restore, you know, wounds? Those are things that we talk about in that class. That is, yeah, that that is pretty amazing, and and you clarified, and and even made it clear in in the way that you responded my question, because exactly it doesn't have to be a studio in which you design something, but like a seminar can be um, a production space too, in which you produce. Uh, knowledge in a different way and, and and not just papers and not just um you know the final product of a seminar doesn't have to be always a paper and it can be a, a different material uh production which in in the case of this um feminine um history of feminism is the course that you were mentioning uh histories of architecture and feminism 
uh, course it is precisely going to an archive and and I think that we we have to be more creative. I, I guess that uh, once we are able to go back to the archives, uh, now that you know the the whole thing allow us to go back to to school and to go back to the libraries and to go back to the archives, we have to be more creative precisely with with these things and how how can we create and access um, these spaces but also to generate courses that are more more than just generating papers and, and making students do readings. Um, there's different ways of learning, I guess. Not I guess, like I'm, I'm sure. There, there's different ways to learn than just reading and, and producing text. So, yes. But... Um, Going back to, I guess, being a little bit stubborn, going back to the like studio course, uh, are you interested in teaching studio courses? Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about it because it's really isn't part of my job description at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not uninterested. I think it, it hasn't come up yet. I, if it were to come up, I think it would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. I, it's been so long since I've done it. I honestly haven't given it a thought, but it would be kind of a, I'm, it's, it, it is one of those things that it has been so long that it would be so exciting to do. I could imagine doing it again. In yeah. fact, the last time I taught a studio course was in Philadelphia. Oh, at Penn um, or Temple or? Uh, um, um, what is it called? Philadelphia um, University? Is that a little, it's a smaller school. Um, it was not at Temple, it was at, um, it was at a little college, I think, but I think it became a university and it's called Philadelphia University. Or could it be oh, University of New I rode my bike there and I mm. don't remember where it is, but it's like sort of west, mm. sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's that's. But, um, so yeah. Um, yes, uh, one of one of the one of the other things that I wanted to mention and that I, I remember is being precisely in one of those workshops that you mentioned with um, that you participating and precisely I was in in one of these workshops that Sophie Hoykassel uh, organized and you were you were there I mean you were there. Um, on a Zoom, uh, connected on, on Zoom, but you were like, I, I was here in Philadelphia in, with Sophie and other, or other PhD students and you were there connected. And we were precisely speaking about um, one of Sophie's courses and how, how precisely to talk about the canon and, and, and how to deal with this. And, and I guess that um, you, you, we kind of like touched on 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 the the topic and we kind of like touch on how to organize these courses and how to create i i love the way that you define this uh, idea of the scaffolding of the course and how can how can you as a professor or someone else as a professor can just plug in to that scaffolding and teach what you're interested in or what your knowledge allows but also you know plug into that 
structure that will allow to to complete the course that it's a requirement but also that will allow to to fill in uh, part of this this knowledge but also this this whole idea of the narrative not not having to be linear but kind of like modular and fill in those modules in in and how to explain it yes like um my dear architect friend can we stop using words like plug and all these architecty words that you're using um <laughs> the truth is that i i really wouldn't want to think of it as this maximum this structure for maximum flexibility in which we can dehumanize all professors so that they can just like insert themselves and and you know be taken in and out as needed i really do think it was intended that the the course is intended to allow individuals to inhabit a space as they do yes. um and i i understand that as a graduate student and thinking as a phd thinking about how you might be able to teach one of these kinds of courses that is still required by architecture departments that mm -hmm. architecture departments still see a need to teach history in this way it does still seem to be a bread and butter way of teaching history i think that i understand that this desire to want to rethink how that can happen yeah how that can happen with all the all the politics that we're seeing but also how that can happen functionally like what can that course actually functionally be so that it can invite the best you know invite the most people invite the best people the best exactly. way of doing and look well. like exactly yeah. yes i guess that but, it but i really hesitate to think of it as a sort of plug-in modernist sixties kind of um yes archigram structure yes i guess that the way that i was describing it i would just like to not um think of it that way just because it's um it's not it, yeah i don't know i also think that um i i have great respect for many colleagues who have really spent their careers and done deep deep work on subject matter that we would absolutely call canonical. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this term, we were talking about this a little bit before the recording began. And I, I mentioned uh, before the recording began that I didn't want to get into this. And I think that I now let us just get into this because it's such a complicated thing. And I know that graduate students really need to deal with this. And I myself had to deal with this. And um, I think it does great violence, and it does great violence upon graduate students, particularly, because one is in, one is expected to define one's work in relation to this thing. Especially, you know, for students who study something that can be defined within what we call the modern period. I mean, I was I'm an art historian. I didn't mm -hmm. study architecture school i studied in an art history school mm -hmm. where the canon means the canon not yeah. what you all call the canon the canon actually refers to sacred things and it's usually referring to things that are 
you know, hundreds of years old, if not thousands of years old, not what everybody here thinks of, it's not Le Corbusier, it's actual things that have been canonized by someone. So everything I work on is quite um, profane because it actually isn't um, part of any canon. Hmm. And not everything I work on, everything that Le Corbusier worked on is actually quite profane. So what I'm saying is that the this, um, this politics of whether or not your work fits into something like a canon or doesn't is simply another form of structural violence. And I think to, that having to participate in this conversation or having to support it by having the conversation or not having the conversation, having to critique the conversation, having to work on the canon or having to critique the canon, all of this is part of a violence that I, I find myself just increasingly as and I'm, some of this is just aged. I'm just increasingly tiring of this particular performance. Yes. I don't think that we all need to support this anymore. I would like to defund this particular conversation. Yes, yes, yes. Understand. I don't know that we need to add value to this by constantly talking about this. Yes, it's, it's... However, I recognize that I am speaking to someone who is in a PhD program, and I do, I will say to you that I have been in um, job interviews as a very precarious person. As I've told you at the beginning of this conversation, mm -hmm. I had two children in hand, attempting to get a job, like really fighting for my life. I was on the job market for four years, unlike many people that you know who get jobs before they even finished their PhD. Yes. And I, um, you know, was really struggling simply to make ends meet, being asked by people, well, what does your work say about the canon? Hmm. Is your work just throwing the canon into the trash? And I would have to politely say, you know, no, no, sir, I don't mean to throw your canon in the trash. So these are things that I think are very violent, and I don't think we should all have to really constantly relive them yes and i guess that now now that you put it that way it i was reading precisely about the cancellation culture and it kind of like aligns with that it's it's this idea of the cancellation culture is violent is violent in itself because you are precisely like completely erasing something and in a violent way and and it, it makes me think a lot it makes me think a lot in, in, in precisely the way that we talk about, th the dismissive way that we talk about the canon in the way that we, like you said, in the way that you, in the way that we, in, in this modern, not modern, sorry, contemporary um, structure uh, of, of uh, conversation, we are putting it. So a, a very interesting way of uh, kind of like segueing to the to the end of the of the podcast and the conversation to think about. But thank but you. Thank me, you for that. Wait, let me say one more thing. Sure. Just let me be quite clear. I have many, many colleagues who do fine, fine work on things that could only be called canonical. And I do think that this is just a reductive way to think of any kind of work. And this term is not necessary. It doesn't 
doesn't help us think about what the work is or isn't. So I really do think that we need to sort of really, we're in a different world. We need to think differently about how we are speaking about what we're speaking about. And, you know, honestly, we're really looking at a world that is on fire and not only metaphorically, obviously. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we should also want a canon for goodness sake. We should want it all. We should want everything we can possibly get at this point. So I just think, you know, let's just put it all into a little perspective is what I think. Good. Thank you very much for that, for that thought. I, I really appreciate what you're, what you're saying. It, it gives perspective to precisely to the words and to the, to the ideas. And it's also, it, it's always great to have, to have that, to have those, those, um, you know, uh, points of view and to think about them. I, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate the way that you, that you put it. Um, I know that we have to almost uh, leave and to almost finish. Um, and to close, I have a couple of questions uh, in this quarantine where we don't, well, now I see that you're, people don't know, but we are in, in Zoom and we can see each other. I see that you are in your office. So I probably won't say this that I normally say that we are only surrounded by our books in our houses. You're probably surrounded by more than your books that you have in your house. But uh, I would like to say, uh, I would like to ask what was in this um, period that we were uh, mostly surrounded by the books that we had in, your, in our own places, uh, your favorite book, the book that accompanied you during this quarantine? Um, you know, it's funny, it's not a book that I read during the quarantine, but it's a book that I just inhabit. Um, it's the book that someone gave me just after I um, defended my dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's a, a book I'm sure you know well called Lose Your Mother by Saidia Hartman. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a beautiful book and a very sad book. And I, it's not even that... I mean, it's like a lovely book and all that, but it wasn't even that I love the kind of um, epistemic project of the book, but um, I think I love my own memory of the book. I love that my colleague gave it to me just spontaneously handed it to me one day when I was, when I happened to see her walking down the street and just handed it to me, you know, And it was right after I had defended and mm -hmm. I don't know, it was all just accidental. And it was exactly what I needed to read right at that moment. And I think it was, it's a precious memory. And those kinds of memories were a great comfort to me in this um, very, very harsh time. Times. Yes. Yes. And um, the last uh, section of the, of the podcast is a section that I took uh, from one of my favorite podcasts that it's called Latinos Who Lunch. Shout out to oh, them. Wait, sorry, wait, 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 before yes. we go. Can I name one other book? Yes, sure, sure, sure. I meant, yes, of course. I meant to name two. Because the other thing I really have actually been reading during this pandemic, mm -hmm. I have been going back to all the poetry books because I told you I come from literature. Yes. And the one book I've been really 
really rereading lately, and I wanted to tell everyone on this podcast about it, is this um, uh, book of poems by Imtiaz Darker, and I can send it to you later if you like. Mm-hmm. It's called Postcards from God. It's a book of poems that was written after the Bombay blasts in the 1990s, uh, which was a time when, when I was um, a young architect, when I was living in, in Bangalore. I was working as an architect in Bangalore and um, there was recently this anti-Muslim violence that I just, um, it was a time uh, that lived, lives large in my own kind of life memory. And so I think I'm more and more in my free time find myself reading poetry. Poetry. Great. More than anything else, actually. So, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. You were good. saying. So, any other book? No? No, that was it. I just okay, need good. to put that in. So, yeah, the last section, as I was saying, that I took from one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Latinos Who Lunch, shout out to them, is um, a book series, podcast, something that it's thought-provoking that you would like to recommend to us. It's a section about recommendations. Oh, well, can it be this, this book of poems? Yes, of course. Um, it's just a, it's a beautiful, um, not only a beautiful book of poems, but a beautiful book of um, prints as well. Every poem comes with its own prints. Mm -hmm. And I would highly recommend getting this book. It is called Postcards from God. Just have a look. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Anuradha, thank you very much for being here. Uh, It was a lovely conversation. I think that, um, like you said, we we could uh, extend this uh, you and I, or even for the for the audience, uh, longer. But um, I know time is short. Um, but it was lovely having you here. It was a great conversation. And uh, thank you very much for being here. Do you would you like to ask? Uh, sorry to add uh, something before leaving. No, nothing else. Thank you for inviting me. It really was an honor. Thank you very much, and uh, see you next week. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye, Ramon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please follow us on From the Margins podcast on Instagram and on From the Margins Perspective Zone Architecture on Facebook, where you can find links to the webpage and more information on the links about the topics we discussed during the episode and the channels to communicate with me. I would love to hear from you and your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate us. The more subscribers and better reviews means more representation. Thanks again.